I think that sometimes friends have to speak, you know, hard truths to friends. If they don't have a plan, they better get on it. This could be Mogadishu on steroids. Is Very that a sick. message you would drive home to Elon Musk if you were? But again, I think you were trying to personalize it, and that might, a little like bit, that, yes. Yeah. It's been calm. We've had some scuffles and clashes. You're damn right. The subsidies are crazy. The probably most immediately impacted area if there is a change of presidency in the US will be Ukraine and the position in Ukraine and we need to be absolutely acutely alert to that. Happy New Year and welcome to the first edition of Politico's Transatlantic Power Play podcast of 2024. Since launching this show in September, I've spoken to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic, from prime ministers to ambassadors, CEOs and people taking decisions that affect major conflicts, the climate, the cities all around us and where big geopolitical stories are heading next. It's certainly been an eventful few months. The war in Ukraine rages on and the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza has filled the airwaves, making for gruesome headlines at Politico and beyond. As we begin an epic election year in North America and Europe, we thought it would be a moment to take a breath and listen back to some of my most interesting conversations with power players over the first 10 or so episodes. Let's begin with my encounter with Sakir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party in the UK. He crossed the Atlantic on a get-to-know-you trip to meet fellow progressive leaders at a centre-left summit in Montreal. Buoyed by large poll leads, Starmer's been keen to burnish his credentials as the challenger to become Britain's Prime Minister this year. He's also an aspiring figure on the world stage. So when I asked him about his relations with American leaders, this was the recent president he chose to praise and another possible returner he wanted to warn us about. Which US president's past, let's leave out the, the present one, do you admire or have an intellectual relationship with? Oh, President Obama is the one I speak to most frequently. I've spoken to him a number of times. And his analysis on the world is always interesting, his challenges to us, and, and just going through with him what he faced, how he rose to the challenges. But he's a key Did he rise man. to the challenges in, in, in foreign affairs, the Syria red lines, the well, relatively soft on Russia? Does that not look as if it dated quite badly, actually, for a certain kind of progressive... Well, look, these, these were tough and difficult decisions that he had to make. But he's an acute observer of politics in the UK. It's completely across what's happening. And I think it is always useful to test my ideas on people who've won elections, people who've taken difficult decisions in power, because that helps me think about how we might approach some of the decisions we might have to take if we do win that election. Do you worry that a Trump presidency would have a more conciliatory approach to President Putin and to the outcome of the war in Ukraine? Because when you say it's a hypothetical, that's a very important hypothetical, isn't it? Uh, uh, Yeah, it is. And uh, obviously, there's a great deal of concern in Ukraine about that possibility. And I think we all need to be alive to it. And that's why it's very important that progressives hold together in difficult circumstances as they've done before because the probably most immediately impacted area if there is a change of presidency in the US will be Ukraine and the position in Ukraine and we need to be absolutely acutely alert to that. 
The man Keir Starmer is hoping to replace in number 10 Downing Street has a lot on his plate. When I spoke to Rishi Sunak, he just marked his first year in office as Britain's Prime Minister, although there wasn't much to celebrate as his government lurched from one crisis to another. One area in which he did try to seize the initiative was keeping tabs on advances in artificial intelligence. Sunak, the first PM to grace the power play hot seat, was hosting the AI Safety Summit at Bletchley Park, home to Britain's famous code-breaking activities in the Second World War. As the summit got underway, he invited me into Downing Street for a chat. I'm Rishi, it's so nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Despite plummeting poll numbers, Sunak was on ebullient form. Maybe it was because one of the world's richest entrepreneurs and endlessly controversial figures was in town. And listen to the end for a striking moment. If you listen to what Elon Musk is is saying, I think he's someone who for a long time, to his credit, for over a decade, has been talking about the potential risk of AI and this existential risks or societal risks, however you want to describe them. But he also talks... Uh, very passionately, as he did today, about the incredible benefits that AI can bring. And, you know, my, you know, what I want to do is make sure people are reassured that we're handling the risks so that they can focus on enjoying the benefits. He's a controversial guest, and having that visualisation of the number 10, or that famous number 10 on the door with the X symbol of the platform that uh, Elon Musk now heads, formerly known as Twitter, looked a bit like a special welcome for someone who is criticised for spreading disinformation, for endorsing unverifiable posts. You could say that your guest is kind of part of the technological problem you want to solve. Well, no, as I said, he, he is someone who actually has for a very long time, for a decade or so, been warning about the potential risks of AI and has said that governments and others need to be engaged in managing and mitigating against these risks. He's someone who is a leading developer of AI technology himself, so he understands this space particularly well. You know, but you haven't to- really answered my question to whether he's in any sense a kind of problematic person in some of the ways that he runs part of his businesses or his vision for this all-comers. He's only just taken down some very, very difficult well, and you, disinformative well, So posts. I can tell you what we've done here in the UK is we've passed something called the Online Safety Act, which, again, I think is on the kind of forward-leaning edge of, of what other countries have done. And that gives us and the regulators here the power to compel large social media companies to remove harmful or illegal content from their platforms. It gives the regulator the power to find them when that isn't being done. Now, this has been a Is that a message sec- you would drive home to Elon Musk if you were to... But again, you know, I think you're trying to personalise it. And that a might, little bit, that, yes, yeah, because but, but he is that, such a big character well, in, but, in this debate. But this is, goes far beyond him. That go, This goes to the safety of our children. There are already and you mentioned Meta before, right? This goes to a range of very significant social media platforms where, and we want to make sure that our children are protected online as they are you know, walking around our streets and our new act gives us the powers and the regulator the powers to remove harmful content, whether that is things that are illegal or disinformation and gives us quite strong uh, tools in the form of significant fines to enforce it and I think that's the right thing to do. It's interesting that the clocks here in Downing Street are not really digital, are they? I love <laughs> yeah, well, apologies. Yes. No, no need to apologise. Yeah. It's a podcast charm moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever happens to Rishi Sunak in the UK general election expected this year, it's good to know those antique Downing Street clocks will still be bang on time. No sooner had the first few editions of Powerplay dropped 
than war broke out in the Middle East. We have breaking news out of Israel this morning where Hamas has launched a surprise attack within Israel's borders overnight. First, The atrocity of the Hamas attacks on Israel on the 7th of October provoked outrage in Israel and her allies across the world. Just days after the attacks, I spoke to one of Israel's most senior diplomats, Ron Prossel, the ambassador to Germany. His anger and his demand for retribution were palpable. If I were to ask you, given this terror that has afflicted Israel, what you think a retaliation can achieve, how would you frame that for me? I think, sadly, the state of Israel and many in the Western world, it took them too long to recognize that the strategy of containment with Islamic jihadists does not and will never work. So Israel has decided to move from containment to eradication. What does it mean? It means removing the Islamic state of Hamas and all its military infrastructures from our borders. Now, this might To make the comparison, it's like uh, ISIS was seen as an undefeatable ideology rather than a military organization. Now, this task seemed difficult and even daunting at times. But if we really stand together, we are able and we should be able to do that. But what would that mean in practice as Israel's aerial assault on Hamas targets escalated? And how should Israel and her allies approach the military and moral conundrum of Palestinians caught up in the Gaza offensive? Four-star General David Petraeus led United States forces in Iraq, Bosnia and Afghanistan before being appointed director of the CIA by President Obama and now authoring books on modern warfare. And he had this prescient warning about the perils of counterinsurgency campaigns. So I think it's actually worth thinking about that much broader approach that counterinsurgency requires. And by the way, it's a longer term vision. You don't win counterinsurgencies in a year or two. They typically take a decade or more, uh, as we saw in Iraq, uh, as we saw in Afghanistan. If all you do is just do an enormous amount of damage and then hand it back to the same people that oversaw the development of these terrorist elements or enabled them or allowed them, then what have you achieved? So with your experience on that and possibly looking back to some things that were missed, what would you be advising? I'd be advising that it it would be a good time to lay out a vision for the people of Gaza uh, beyond the targets of these operations. Uh, who are going to suffer, by the way, but they need to have some sense of what is going to follow. I think the Israeli military undoubtedly wants to have some sense of that. What is the vision? I mean, for all those that say the two-state solution is dead, I say, tell me what your alternative is, uh, because there is none. Uh, But this is the time to do it. I also spoke to the deputy mayor of Jerusalem to gauge the mood in a city that has huge significance for both sides in this conflict. I asked Fleur Nassan Nahum to describe the mood around her and whether she thought the conflict could be contained. It's not been difficult over the last few days in terms of it's been calm. We've had some scuffles and clashes. The mayor um, bolstered the security around the neighborhoods of the scene, we call it, which is the neighborhoods between Jews and, and Arabs. 
but for the most part, you know, we all live and work together. I just went out and, you know, my butcher is Arab and we were chatting like nothing. And we're used to this, unfortunately. I hate to say it, perhaps not at this scale. But I, I also think that the Arabs here in Jerusalem and in, in general, in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, are not very connected to the Gazan uh, Palestinians. Well, people seem to put all the Palestinians in one bucket and they're really very different. The reverberations of the war in the Middle East were being felt across Europe, and nowhere more so than in Germany, where sensitivities over anti-Semitism run particularly deep. In October, I spoke to Matthias Döpfner, the man in charge of Europe's leading digital publisher, Axel Springer, whose titles include Die Welt and Built in Germany, and of course, our own Politico. I've known Matthias since we were both journalists covering the aftermath of the unification of Germany. So how does Angela Merkel's legacy look to him since her departure as Chancellor? I'm always struck when I discuss Merkel, where I have, as they say in German, you know, two souls in my breast, two on this issue. Huge admiration for her in large parts of the world, along with, as you point out, many more doubts and a dismay about Germany's role in the run-up to what has happened in Ukraine, but more broadly to that energy dependency, etc. What do you make of her legacy overall? History will tell, but I think uh, despite her achievements, which are unquestionable, there will be two things that will definitely be part of a negative legacy, and that is the dropout of nuclear energy. After Fukushima, which I think was completely unnecessary, not based on facts, but only on emotions or tactical considerations for future coalition constellations with the Greens. So to take out that uh, greener position against nuclear energy by simply stepping out of nuclear energy and with that create a big value destruction in the German economy, but more importantly, lay the fundament for that dependency that we have just discussed. I think that is clearly one of the fundamental and uh, historic mistakes. And the other one is the management of the migration crisis, which has undermined German society, created a lot of unrest, security risks, uh, parallel societies, and uh, re-established anti-Semitism on German streets, and has created indirectly the AfD, or at least the role that this very right-wing populist party these days plays in Germany. Why do you think Western leaders, Angela Merkel, Tony Blair, if we go back to that time, gave Putin the benefit of the doubt to an extent. Do you think they were preoccupied with business, trade, energy links with Russia? That's one analysis. Or do you think that they, you know, there was also a kind of optimism there that was just misplaced? Well, it can be both. There there was certainly a degree of optimism that Russia would change. And that was still the time also when this old idea of change through trade was a phrase that was constantly used and maybe it was partly motivated by opportunism, but it could also be motivated by the simple belief that dealing with more autocratic countries will open them up, will lead to more democracy, will lead to more freedom. And that was the case in dealing with Russia, that was the case in dealing with China, that was the case in dealing with Islamist countries, non-democracies all around the world, and it never worked and hasn't worked anywhere, and Russia is a particularly sad case. Welcome back to this special edition of Powerplay, bringing you highlights of our interviews so far. 
the second Prime Minister to appear on the podcast, was Greece's Kyriakos Mitsotakis, whose honeymoon after his landslide re-election in the summer proved to be short-lived, as his country was hit by horrendous wildfires and floods. Like many other European leaders, Mitsotakis was preoccupied by the war in the Middle East. A firm ally of Israel, Greece expressed its solidarity for the country after Hamas's attacks on 7th of October. But the longer and bloodier Israel's ground offensive became, the more that support was tested. Mr Mitsutakis had these words of warning. As time progresses and as uh, Israel continues with this uh, very, very aggressive military campaign, yes, there will be an increased concern about the proportionality of the Israeli response. And I'm speaking as a friend of Israel. And I think that sometimes friends have to speak, you know, hard truths to friends uh, that at the end of the day, we should not, uh, you know, undermine what is a strategic goal to defeat Hamas. But we should also try to think about the day after what is going to be the arrangement that will govern Gaza the day after and not to sort of drive these divisions in such a way to make it inconceivable the day after to talk about a political solutions to the problem. At the end of the day, Uh, one needs to recognize what is the price that one has to pay in order to uh, defeat Hamas. It's a very delicate balance. I understand. And I understand also where Israel is coming from. Uh, you know, the, what happened on October 7th was beyond uh, horrific. But I would also uh, repeat what President Biden said, that the urge for revenge, uh, it doesn't necessarily turn into good politics. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11... We were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. I'm the first US president. Talking of American politicians, I took the opportunity to ask Mitsotakis about what he feels about a possible change of personnel in the White House as we enter a big US election year. It turns out that the Greek PM may have been listening to power play already. How do you think Greece and, and uh, your own leadership would be affected if it was a different face in the White House next year? You could be talking to President Trump. How would that strike you? I know you made the, the you, you've been making the same, I listened to your previous podcast and I know you've made the same question also to other leaders who have appeared. So I will also be very, very discreet and in not commenting about this possibility. What I can tell you is that the strategic relationship between Greece and the US, I think, transcends the person who actually sits in the White House at any given point. And I'm saying this, I have tremendous respect for President Biden. We have an excellent cooperation. But I've also worked with President Trump before uh, President Biden. So I've actually visited two um, US presidents at the White House. And when I look at Congress... And you believe that relationship would be manageable I think again. that the relationship will go from strength to strength. As 2023 drew to a close, the Power Play team headed to Dubai for COP28, the UN's annual round of climate talks hosted by one of the world's leading oil and gas producers, the United Arab Emirates. Political leaders, heads of state, chief executives of big business and environmental NGOs were among the staggering 100,000 delegates milling around a sprawling campus officially designated as UN territory in a corner of the Gulf. One of the most significant figures was John Kerry, the US's special presidential envoy for climate. When I sat down with him midway through the two-week-long talks in the desert, he was in defiant mode. This cop needs to be committed to phasing out all unabated fossil fuel. That means we cannot allow the emissions to be going up 
And the goal is a minimum of a 43% reduction by 2030 and a net zero goal by 2050. How you get there is up to you. Certainly by getting rid of subsidies, that would be or, damn or diminishing. Right. The subsidies are crazy. And we have them still in the United States. President Biden has said we've got to get rid of these subsidies. But again, you have to get, you know, you have to legislate to do that. And we've been uh, pretty gridlocked in our country for a period of time. And finally, it's become a bit of a traditional last question for my guests on Powerplay. Who would they like to hear from in the future on the podcast? We have had a range of answers from statesmen to pop icons. Well, I think if you could get them, Jake Sullivan is uh, is very good value. You know, you should book Tucker. So you think we should go for Tucker Carlson because? He's interesting. Um, he gives a good interview. He doesn't hold back. Who would you like to hear? Winston Churchill. Not available, sadly. <laughs> where's, where's the new Winston Churchill, the young Winston Churchill? I'm so desperately looking for that with regard to our political leadership. Right. There you go. That, that's our task. Producers, did you get that? Our job is to find the next Winston Churchill <laughs> and put him on the show. Demis Sasabas, the CEO of DeepMind. We're talking about AI. You know, there's few better people for you to talk to who understand this. Good get this. someone, you know, um, to talk about... Uh, the tremendous progress that uh, AI has uh, has made. Uh, how about I don't know, Demis Hassabis from um, uh, you know DeepMind. Uh, you want me to destroy, destroy all my relationships by putting somebody on the hot seat and then they'll curse me for the rest of my life? I can't do that. I mean, it's I hope it's not being that grueling an experience. Oh, no, I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear from uh, one of our global premier musicians as to how they kind of keep on being creative and moving forward with uh, hope and in the midst of all this Okay, well, that's doable. Who would you like oh to sing along to? Tap a foot to? I'm uh, dangerously antiquated in that regard. I'm a 1960s, 70s guy, so get Paul McCartney or Elton John or Bruce Springsteen. We'd have a great time. You are definitely more than hired as a booker for Power Thank you. Play. Well, Thank I you. didn't get them. I just put them <laughs> on the high seat. And finally, to get you in the mood for winter sports, Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Finance, wondered if he and I had the same idea of outdoor fun and a slightly worrying challenge for me. I hope we have a small intersection in our idea of fun. What's your idea of fun? What's my idea of fun? <laughs> oh, God, that's a good question. My idea of fun would be in um, uh, looking out the window here in Ottawa. There's not quite enough snow on the ground, so. Uh, but I would, uh, if we can get a bit more, uh, cross-country skiing would be fun. That's this time of year. That's fun. And if you forgive me for some of my questions, you could. I can come along with you. Of course, of course, I will. I'm very happy to lead you <laughs> into the woods, into the dark, snowy, frozen woods. It's, it's it's sounding now, very. I might have to come back a little faster than than you. So, but. Yeah, you can come so with me. What's Mark Connie oh, going to do when I get out. lost in the dark woods? Thank you very much. You've been a very good sport. Yeah. Thank you, Mark Carney. Thank you, man. My pleasure. Well, if I make it back to the log cabin, we hope to bring you more great guests and conversation in this bumper election year in the US, UK and European Parliament. Do get in touch and tell us who you'd like to hear from. But from us now, a great 2024 to you all. Behind every great episode of Power Play stand our great production team, Peter Snowden and Christina Gonzalez. And if you'd like to check out them with their power pets, 
You can see Rosie and Nellie, who we consider part of the team as well, on X Twitter.